Before we get into the show, we wanted to let you know about an upcoming podcast from TVO Today called The Ultimate Choice. It's a docu-style series hosted by investigative journalist Rob Cribb. Through his decade-long investigation into the issues of physician-assisted death, he gets to know a man named Michael and his wife, Anne. Along with Rob, we learn about Michael's motivation for seeking medical assistance in dying, or MAID, and hear from critics and advocates as Canada debates the expansion of the legislation. Michael's story is playing out all across the country, and while this issue is wrapped up in politics and legislation, the series is about raw human experience and people desperate to make the right choice. The Ultimate Choice will be out on January 25th, so make sure you take a listen. Welcome, everyone, to our first On Poly podcast of 2024. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, a look ahead into the Ontario government's priorities for the upcoming year. Will they, as the Premier likes to say, get it done? Ontario's capital city released a first look at its budget, and we have the details. First, the Toronto Public Library got hit, and now it's the Toronto Zoo. How can Ontario institutions, companies, and you protect yourself from cybercrime? It's Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. So let's get to it. Hey, JMM. Hey, Steve. How you doing? I know it's way too late to be wishing anybody Happy New Year, but since this is our first podcast of 2024, I'm going to break the rules and I'm going to say Happy New Year. How are you? Uh, I'm well. Happy New Year to you, Steve. (laughs) Thank you very much. Did you, just uh, apropos of absolutely nothing here, did you see the vanity license plates that the Ministry of Public Business and Service Delivery refused to permit this year. You know, I always miss that list because I get so excited by the list of the most popular baby names at the end of the year. (laughs) Well, okay, I'm going to see if I can drag you out of that and into this because there's an online magazine called Narcity, and they just did a story on rejected license plates. And some of these, some of these I understand why they were declined. Let's go through some of those. For example, now I don't know if I can say this, but this first license plate is spelled C-R-A-Z-B-T-C-H. So I get why that one was rejected. The next one is the number four, and then the letter F, and then sakes, for F sakes. Okay, I get that one. Next one, D-O-N-T-B-S-M-E. Okay, not not terrible, but okay, I see that too. And then this last one, well, I, I, I see why this one did not make the cut. No, N-O, F-N, <laughs> W-A-Y, no F and way. Uh, I'm assuming you'd turn those down too. Uh, Were I a uh, bureaucrat in the Ministry of Transportation, I think I I would be honor-bound to turn those down. Though I will say, as a a journalist, uh, there's a certain charm to don't BS me. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, maybe that'd be a good one for a journalist to have. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, but these ones also got turned down. There's a license plate that said 1MP05T3R. And I guess it's through a combination of letters and numbers that says, imposter which I don't think is so bad. I don't know. The next one says R4, which is meant to look like an A, C-C-O-O-N, raccoon, raccoon. The next one, God love me. What's wrong with God love me? The next one, S-A-T-A-N-666. Out there on the edge, but I don't know, not terrible. And then the last one, this also got rejected, not mafia. Now, I don't know what's wrong with I would like to know that the guy driving in front of me 
is not mafia. Wouldn't that be a good thing to it's know? A joke you see on Twitter, or what we used to call Twitter, uh, uh, you know, uh, my T-shirt saying not mafia is raising a lot of questions that are answered by my T-shirt. <laughs> I, 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 if somebody's saying that they are not mafia, I think maybe I couldn't take their license plate at face value. <laughs> right on, right on. But raccoon, what's wrong Racco- with raccoon or, I, or yeah. imposter? In this city, certainly raccoon. I mean, the raccoons deserve their own license plates, totally. frankly. I totally agree with you on that. Well, let's get into the mailbag here. We do enjoy getting your feedback at this email address, onpoliticsattvo.org. JMM, what's up this week? Uh, Here is a question from ex-user Jason LFG. Uh, I think LFG might also not be allowed in Ontario. (laughs) What does that stand for, do you think? Uh, let's effing go. Oh, is, is that how it? I usually see oh, okay. it used yeah, no, on can't do that. X, so. Can't do that. Uh, does the relationship between provincial government and municipal governments vary from province to province? If so, are there any notable differences that stand out? Thanks, Jason from Bowmanville. Mm, interesting question. I think we can say now. This would be from a view of thirty thousand feet, as they say, that the Constitution declares that municipalities are creatures of their provinces, and therefore. Regardless of province, municipalities need provincial permission to do some of the more ambitious things they might want to do. For example, if a city wants to put a new stop sign up at the corner of McGrath and Pakin Streets, they can do that all on their own. But if they want to impose a new municipal tax on all goods and services that are bought and sold within their jurisdictions, Well, no, they cannot unilaterally do that. They need the provinces to pass legislation enabling them to do that because that tax would infringe on provincial jurisdiction. Now, that's the basic take on all of that. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I would say there's a few notable differences uh, between uh, provinces and cities uh, as you look across the country. Uh, One of the big ones is that I I would say particularly if you look at like Vancouver and Montreal, those cities have a very uh, particular relationship with their provinces. And so Vancouver is sort of the closest you get in Canada to a a true charter city with its own uh, special purpose legislation that uh, really affects how it is governed more than you see in other cities. Technically, Toronto has the City of Toronto Act, but without getting super, super nerdy, um, there are people who would say that that's not really a true city charter. Um, There's still limits on what the city can do. Yes, absolutely. And and I would say the City of Toronto Act is still... um, uh, still largely leaves most of the important decisions up to the province. And, uh, you know, a, a classic example here would be when John Tory wanted to bring in uh, road tolls on the DVP and Gardner. Of course, that was a decision that was vetoed by the premier's office, not uh, not any municipal uh, decision. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that um, provinces delegate different services to municipalities depending on their own priorities. So here in Ontario, municipalities handle um, paramedic services. Uh, Those uh, services are really like a healthcare service. And even though the province does help out with the funding of those and and does give grants to help municipalities pay for those, um, certainly if you ask the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, uh, they will tell you that uh, in most other provinces, that is just considered a healthcare service that is paid for by the province. And this is a a cost that they would really love to see uh, removed from municipal uh, budgets. Uh, So there are other examples we could talk about, but, um, you know, I would say those are two of the other big uh, differences in the way uh, provinces deal with municipalities. It's both the sort of the structure of their legislation and what kind of responsibilities they delegate to them. Good question from Jason LFG, which I can't really spell out. (laughs) (laughs) Again, any questions or comments about our podcast, please email us at onpoliticsattvo.org. And now on to issue one. 
It is a new year at Queen's Park, so let's start by taking a look at what the government has up its sleeve to start this new year. JMM, top of the agenda. What do you think's there? Uh, it's not going to surprise anybody that uh, housing and specifically the affordability of housing, but affordability more generally, and uh, as ever, uh, health care. Uh, these are going to be the major focuses for uh, the government this year. Uh, will not surprise anybody that I'm going to turn to housing first. Um, Ontario has set a, a goal of building 1.5 million homes by 2031. Uh, this is an attempt to try and uh, make homes more affordable by putting more homes on the market. Um, that goal, however, uh, has hit... Uh, say a few speed bumps in the last year. Uh, there was the uh, Greenbelt scandal and now a uh, police investigation of said scandal. You, you'd call that a speed bump? Uh, you know, a little <laughs> minor uh, hiccup in, in the process. Hmm. Um, it, the government also, and this is related to the Greenbelt scandal, frankly, um, it, it can't decide how much land is needed for all of these new homes. Are we going to uh, sprawl out into uh, greenfield lands or are we going to really focus more on intensification and density? And then uh, you've got... Uh, consumers getting uh, hit hard in some cases in the pre-construction uh, market by uh, either developers uh, leaving them holding the bag, uh, or in some cases you've got uh, potential homeowners simply sitting out the market entirely because of the rapid increase in interest rates and increasing fees. I am reading more stories about that very thing these days indeed, yeah. Now, sales in the greater Toronto area are on a pace to see the lowest numbers since the year 2000. And of course, the population of the GTA was much lower then, about 25% lower. So that's significant. We've had a lot of announcements over the past many months. So bring us up to speed, if you would, on what's being done to shore up affordable supply. Uh, the federal government has stepped forward with uh, some uh, substantial funding to try and um, accelerate uh, home building. This is to, to be a bit cheeky about it, it's, it's uh, largely taking the form of bribing municipalities uh, to make it easier to uh, build homes. But uh, so far, we've seen something like $470 million for uh, 12,000 new housing units in the next three years. Um, the government, uh, the federal and provincial governments have both announced that uh, they will remove the uh, HST from uh, purpose-built rental uh, housing. This has been one of the, the main demands uh, by the rental uh, industry uh, to try and get more purpose-built rental uh, units uh, built. Uh, at the moment, if you look at a city like Toronto, the vast majority of so-called rental units that get built on in any given year are really just condos that are getting rented out through brokerages. Um, and then uh, the city of Toronto is being asked, uh, cities around the, the province, but uh, the city of Toronto is also being asked to uh, allow triplexes and fourplexes uh, to, to just be allowed as of right instead of having to go through a lengthy appeals process. Uh, the provincial government uh, has been encouraging this as well as the federal government. And uh, we will see how Toronto and other cities move forward on uh, rezoning issues like that. The housing and the affordable affordability crises really go hand in hand here. Inflation has come down a lot to just over 3% in the province of Ontario. There's talk that as a result of that, interest rates will soon start coming down as well. So how's the government gearing up to deal with the affordability issue in the coming year? You know, you really can't uh, overstate just how uh, serious a problem this has become. Uh, last year, we saw the number of people using food banks uh, skyrocket, uh, 38% more people than in 2022. Uh, our colleague and affordability reporter Kat Eschner wrote about the changes being needed to Ontario Works, one of the, the main uh, social assistance programs here in Ontario. Uh, she reported that recipients would need an extra $17,000 just to reach 
the poverty line. Hmm. Uh, we are also going to link to a piece in the show notes uh, that Kat wrote about ODSP. That would be the other uh, pillar of social assistance in Ontario and how indexing it to inflation will help, but it will not uh, satisfy people calling for it to be doubled to combat the affordability crisis. But we hate acronyms around here, you know. Uh, yes, so, so uh, yeah. OW is Ontario Works. ODSP is the Ontario Disability Support Program. There we go. Uh, neither of them have kept up with uh, inflation over uh, more than 20 years now. Um, and, uh, you know, people are suffering. I'll believe it at that. Um, and then, of course, uh, just to return to housing very briefly, you know, uh, more affordable and uh, the word the government likes to use, attainable uh, housing is desperately needed in the province. Uh, the province, of course, did sign the uh, so-called New Deal with the City of Toronto. And part of that New Deal was uh, specifically to uh, help fund more affordable housing uh, in the City of Toronto. Uh, does not fix the overall issue, but hopefully it will move the needle somewhat. Good. Uh, what else you got? <laughs> so much more for the start of the year. Hmm. Uh, Feed Ontario's 2023 report uh, had a number of recommendations, including uh, aligning Ontario Works and ODSP rates with the cost of living, classifying gig workers as employees. Uh, this is a, a long-standing uh, labor issue where uh, gig workers for companies uh, like Uber uh, are not technically considered employees of those companies and are not entitled to all of the the rights that would normally uh, pertain to those workers. Um, invest Investing in uh, laws to uh, protect tenants more than they are currently protected because 74% of food bank visitors are uh, living in market rental housing. Uh, things like rent control could offset some of the costs that send people to food banks. For the, for the record, landlords would say, fine, you want to bring in rent controls? You'll never see any more purpose-built rental built. Well, exactly. And this is you know where you want to balance questions of, um, you know, could you, for example, make the argument to the rental industry like, hey, we just gave you guys a big honking tax break. Maybe we can at least temporarily look at things like uh, uh, strengthened tenant protections. I, I don't think the industry is um, eager for that kind of a bargain, but those are the kinds of uh, questions that I think uh, uh, proponents would be asking for. How about on transit? Uh, transit affordability, uh, there is a plan to have the TTC and other uh, transit system fares all um, uh, really operate much more seamlessly through the Presto system. Some of this, of course, is already happening, but the idea would be that if you are a commuter from, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Mississauga, you could get on your bus in Mississauga, get to the GO train station, take the GO train into Union Station in downtown Toronto, and then hop on the subway on the TTC to get to your work. And through all of that, only pay your one fare. Uh, at the moment, of course, you could pay multiple fares and it would get very expensive. This has been a perennial issue at Queen's Park. It was why, really like why they forced transit systems to adopt Presto in the first place. Um, it was to get to this point. But the question has always been, who pays for all of this? It looks like the province is finally accepting that they are going to have to pay for it and we will get some kind of uh, fare harmonization. Um, hopefully that will be uh, a bit of a break for uh, Go Community in this year. We really do need to talk about the number one spending envelope that any provincial government anywhere in the country has to deal with, and that, of course, is health care, where I think we're approaching $80 billion of annual spending in the province of Ontario. 
What has the government got new to say there? Well, before we get to what the government has to say, I mean, you know, this been a lot of bad headlines for the government. Uh, I mean, if, even if you just look at the, the uh, news about ER closures, I mean, this has been uh, a continuing issue. Uh, the government has really struggled, particularly in rural areas. And, and to be fair to this government, it's not a new problem, right? Service delivery in rural Ontario is just a, a difficult problem to solve. Um, it gets more difficult if you're also simultaneously trying to keep a, uh, a lid on provincial spending. Um, but, you know, there are uh, strains, cracks appearing in the healthcare system. Uh, a recent poll from Nano suggested 40% of healthcare workers are thinking about quitting their jobs and that about 80% of those workers are not confident that the government can fix the situation. Uh, union leaders have called on the government to invest $1.25 billion over the next five years to try and fix capacity issues. Well, we talked a bit about this in our last episode where we mentioned that there were Can you imagine this? 200 emergency room closures across Ontario last year. 200. Now, those are really concerning numbers, especially for northern communities, because oftentimes the ER is your family doctor as well. So on top of that, the average wait time to be triaged in an emergency room, you know that when you go to an ER and you get the nurse to first look at you, they have to decide, are you urgent or can you sit and wait a while? And if you're not You know, the way the system works, the most urgent people get seen first. The average wait times now have increased by 30 minutes over the last 10 years. So again, to be clear, you're going to wait an average of 30 minutes longer today than you would have 10 years ago if you go to the emergency room. It just shows how everything is much more under strain today. The Auditor General points out uh, that um, staffing shortages, uh, one of the major reasons why things have gotten so bad. So, uh, What's the government got up its sleeve to deal with this? Well, according to that same report, um, not really a lot. There is no plan in place to prevent these closures. Uh, the Ministry of Health and Ontario Health, the uh, agency that coordinates a lot of the healthcare uh, delivery ar- across the province, uh, they rely on hospitals to figure these things out for themselves, uh, which uh, resulted in uh, closures of emergency departments and an over-reliance on um, agency nursing, which is more expensive when uh, you have to hire uh, effectively temporary workers uh, to come in uh, on an as-needed basis. Um, it is more expensive than, than having those nurses on staff. Uh, hospitals say they have to rely on, on agency nurses for the flexibility that it provides. You know, that AJ's report did outline several recommendations to help f- uh, fix staffing shortages, uh, including uh, looking at the compensation of emergency room staff, developing more efficient systems, allowing smaller hospitals to participate in what's called the Pay for Results program. The PC government invested $44 million to allow for that. There are currently ads running right now in this province about the number of nurses being trained in Ontario. But if you've been to an emergency department recently, and knock on wood, I haven't been, um, we are going to need even more nurses and hospital staff to get wait times back down. Hmm. Okay, we're going to keep an eye on all these stories uh, throughout the year. So look forward to our continuing coverage there. And now let's move on to issue two. Last week, Ontario's capital city gave us a first glance at its budget for the next fiscal year. This is Mayor Olivia Chow's first budget as well. And the big headline was... The possibility of a significant double-digit property tax increase. That is the speculation. JMM, what do we actually know? Well, we know now that Toronto has a budget shortfall of $1.77 billion that they are going to be grappling with. Uh, We usually explain that under the City of Toronto Act, Toronto uh, cannot run a deficit. Uh, No Ontario municipality can uh, run an operating deficit. They can't just... 
spend money they don't have. So they have to find a way to fill that gap. The proposal that was unveiled last week was for a 9% property tax increase in the city's general budget, uh, as well as a 1.5% tax increase to the city building fund, which is a, a sub fund that pays for transit investment and, and housing and that kind of thing. So uh, that would be in total a 10.5% uh, increase if that is in fact what goes before city council. There is still time for all of this to change. But if it were in fact 10.5%, uh, that would translate into about 300 or so dollars uh, per year per Toronto household, uh, which, uh, you know, under the current climate of high interest rates, and, and we are sort of coming out of an inflationary period, but it's still a good chunk of change. The city is also asking the federal government to chip in. Obviously, we've already mentioned the uh, new deal that was signed between uh, the province and the city. The city is now asking for the feds to come forward. Uh, They are asking for $250 million from Ottawa to help pay for things like uh, shelter beds for refugee claimants and asylum seekers, uh, arguing that it is the federal government and and its policies that have created so much strain for services that uh, Toronto delivers. Uh, If the feds do not come forward, uh, Olivia Chow and uh, her budget chief, Shelley Carroll, have warned... uh, Uh, that the property tax could grow even further uh, to another 6%. Uh, That would bring the total to 16.5%. And uh, just if anybody is not tracking the politics of this, uh, there's also the the, the promise that if the city does have to bring in that extra 6%, they are going to call it the federal impacts levy. As part of the New Deal, the provincial government is uh, chipping in $382 million to uh, help avoid the reduction of the city services. Uh, listeners will also remember that the province uh, is taking responsibility for the Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway. Those are two uh, very large and very expensive pieces of infrastructure that the city, uh, frankly, was looking at having to spend billions of dollars for uh, to, to maintain uh, in the coming years. And so they at least can say they won't have to deal with that going forward. Right. Now, we do have to remember that the city of Toronto's budget is bigger than half the provinces in Canada. It's a $15 billion budget, and it's also, of course, a roadmap for the city's priorities. So what do those look like? You know, there is additional spending in the budget of about $152 million. Uh, This is for new and enhanced services uh, in shelter, uh, housing, transit, uh, community initiatives, and community safety. So, you know, this is showing us, of course, that uh, transit and housing will be uh, large focuses of uh, the budget when it is finalized. Uh, Two things I I guess I will say about that real quick. Um, This is uh, the second budget that uh, a a strong mayor power uh, applies for the city of Toronto, the Previous one was brought forward by John Tory. So Olivia Chow actually has a great deal of control over how this process moves forward that um, John Tory did not for most of his tenure and uh, none of his predecessors did. Um, And the other thing I would say is that, you know, at least from what we've seen discussed so far, I think um, at the risk of speculating, I think I I would say some people um, might be disappointed about what is in this budget so far because so much of the cost increase uh, that we are talking about is largely about uh, keeping existing services uh, forward and and, or restoring some of them in case, in some cases to uh, really just what was like the, the pre-COVID level. Um, and so there's going to be quite a bit of political pain, I think, for this. Um, and, and gains are only going to be felt later on. There was an interesting new wrinkle in the budget as well because it contains some public consultation numbers from 10,000 Torontonians. And those numbers show what people wanted to see in terms of either more or less spending. So let's share some of those numbers here. 37% of those people who weighed in wanted more money for affordable housing and shelter services. 13% wanted more spending on transit services. 10% wanted more spending on police services. 
Now, let's look at the other side of the coin. In terms of decreased services, 43% weighed in to say we want less support for the police. 43%. 13%. Fewer resources to parking. 6% wanted less support for Toronto's businesses and arts and culture. So despite that big percentage of people calling for a decrease in funding to the Toronto Police Service, the cops will actually still see a $20 million increase in 2024. Uh, now, we already did our uh, listener question, but we happen to have another relevant one. David asks, uh, reading that the Toronto Police Chief says that not giving the TPS, that's the Toronto Police Service, its full bu- budget ask will create service problems. Most days I am near Queen and Young, now torn up for the Ontario line. There are almost always several police officers staffing the various sides of the construction. Why? It makes no sense to deploy officers making north of 100000 a year to stand guard there. It can be done, surely, with lower paid security people. Any thoughts, Steve? Ah, yes, indeed. Okay, this is, thank you, David, for that. This is one of the most controversial aspects of how the police in Toronto are paid. What you are watching, David, when you see cops standing around monitoring a construction site, that's called paid duty. City council and the police have a kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge approach to this issue of paid duty. Everybody knows, David's pointed it out in this email, everyone knows we don't need well-trained well-paid police officers standing around watching construction cranes doing their thing and essentially otherwise not really doing anything. But this is a long-standing understanding between council and the cops that allows officers to make extra money on the side by being essentially bystanders keeping an eye on things. The police believe it's essential to allow their officers to make this money on the side because they say that allows the police to demand less from taxpayers when it comes to bargaining for their contracts. And in the main, it is the developers who are paying for the cops to be there. But in the case of the new subway being built, Metrolinx is in charge. They're the developer in charge. So it is possible that provincial taxpayers, rather than city taxpayers, are responsible for this. Anyway, lots of politicians have tried to go after paid duty over the years. Somehow, it always seems to survive this political process. But that's the reason. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, some of these cases are not as um, controversial because there's no public impact, right? I mean, I've, I've been to weddings where there were paid duty Toronto police officers because there were so many cash gifts being given that a family wanted to really ensure that uh, the money was uh, well guarded. Really? Uh, you're, going to, you're going to a lot of mob weddings these days, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Good for you. Uh, only once or twice. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure there were no mobsters involved. <laughs> Okay, back to the city budget now. What are, if I can ask your predictions for how the budget will look in its final form? Right. So, uh, as I said, there's a lot of the process to go forward yet. And as uh, we are releasing this episode, the city has launched a budget committee and it will be holding uh, telephone town halls. There will be uh, some opportunity for public comment. People will get their say about the property tax increases and where their money is being spent. And, you know, of course, Olivia Chow has a a non-trivial number of opponents on city council, some of whom still have their eye on the next mayoral election. Uh, They will be sure to make noise about this. Um, All that said, I think we would be doing a disservice to our listeners if we did not remind people of the context that uh, over, I would say, certainly more than a decade, uh, the city of Toronto has boasted one of the lowest property uh, tax rates in Ontario, some of the lowest uh, property tax increases uh, from... When I started watching Toronto City Hall in 2010, when I think you could argue that Toronto, while still having a relatively low tax rate, it was not egregiously so, uh, the tax rate just 
fell lower and lower in the standings of Ontario cities because other cities don't have things like uh, their municipal land transfer tax to rely on. Mayors from uh, Mel Lastman, Rob Ford, John Tory, uh, more conservative mayors, uh, but also including uh, under David Miller, we saw relatively little in the way of property tax increases. Uh, Tory, in his uh, final year as mayor, the final budget that he passed only days before he resigned, he increased tax rates by 7%. And I think that gives you an indication that the game was kind of running out. The, we were, the, the city was running out of, of time, running out of runway to keep playing this, this game. Um, it, it seems to have finally caught up with the province's largest city. There are services that people demand, infrastructure that people want to see built uh, or even just repaired and maintained. As we said before, the city has no choice. It has to balance its budget. Um, And so I think certainly this year it looks like we are going to see a larger property tax increase than uh, we have seen uh, in 10 or 15 years. But uh, as Steve LaFleur wrote uh, this week for the TVO.org website, uh, even this increase will still leave Toronto property taxpayers paying uh, less on average than the vast majority of Ontario municipalities. So I will uh, leave that with our listeners. <laughs> I think the headline on that was, I'm a conservative and I want to see a bigger tax increase for Torontonians. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We look forward to seeing the final budget. Meantime, on to issue three. If you've tried to reserve a book online from the Toronto Public Library sometime over the last several months, you will know That can't be done. North America's highest circulation public library system has been waylaid by a cyber attack. And they're not the only public institution in Ontario's capital city facing this problem. We learned last week that the Toronto Zoo was also hit with a ransomware attack. We need to know more about this. So, joining us now is Donald Blair. He is the director of IT for Vitimus and who has... 27 years experience in the biz, including a stint as the director of IT for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Donald, thanks for making time with us. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm great, Steve. Uh, and John, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's, uh, it's great to be here. We don't know the extent of the data that has been compromised with the Toronto Zoo. They say that no um, individual credit card information uh, has been compromised. Uh, But we are seeing more and more of these incidents. Who or what is behind the growth in these attacks? This is actually a very simple question to answer. And it's actually why they happen. And it's basically anybody who uh, has the tools and the ability to compromise the system and they will do it be more than likely because they can. There's, you know, a lot of re, a lot of people that might think that anonymous might be behind it, or Chan, or some other kind of nefarious bad actor. But really, it could just be some 16-year-old in his mother's basement uh, banging away at the keyboard and saying, "I wonder what happens if I try this, and I wonder if I can get in this way." The the bad actors come from all walks of life, from all corners of the globe but they have one thing in common. They do it because they can. Donald, I hesitate to ask this next question because in some respects, I am asking you to tell us how they do what they do, but I don't want you giving any tips to people out there who who might want to attack us. So can you essentially tell us a little bit about how they do what they do without too much how-to in there? It's not even so much about how they do what they do, but the way they get access in the first place. Everything that we use today that has an IP address is vulnerable. And an IP address, uh, for those who don't know what that is, it's kind of think of it like a telephone number. 
everybody has a unique telephone number. And in order for you to communicate with somebody else, you've got to dial that phone number. The ways that this happens often comes down to one of two things, uh, bad passwords or opening up email that has a virus or something nefarious attached to that message. Those are the avenues in which a hacker or a bad actor will gain access to a system. Let's look at Queen's Park because we follow Ontario politics here. That's a $220 billion corporation filled with all sorts of people using email all the time. As a result, I presume a great target for malfeasance. How prepared do you think the Ontario government is to um, withstand ransomware attacks? No one is ever fully safe from any kind of cyber attack. Uh, it's not what you want me to say and it's not what you want to hear, but that is the honest to goodness truth. If you've got a device that's connected to the internet, uh, you're not you're not 100% safe. The ways to make yourself as safe as possible is to institute policies and procedures in your departments and across the company, including user training and user education to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Now, the provincial government is very well prepared uh, for not just an attack, but how to recover out of those attacks. And the more that these kinds of things happen, the more prepared that uh, that Queen's Park and that the province will be at mitigating these things from happening. It's never going to be impossible to stop. And ransomware attacks, you know, these this goes back, geez, 20 years now. Uh, I was once an uh, IT manager at uh, Palladium, uh, the uh, popular arcade uh, uh, facility in Toronto. I remember it fondly. <laughs> they, yeah. They, um, uh, they had uh, a ransomware attack when I worked there, and that was in the year 2000. So this actually is not an old phenomenon. This has been going on for a very, very long time. It's just a lot more sophisticated. And it's become a little easier because we're a lot more connected with our devices now than we were in 2000. There's a lot more services and features and functions. I mean, we never had smartphones in 2000, for example. Uh, the internet, uh, we were just starting to get a lot of more, a lot more high-speed access in uh, even in urban areas. So a lot of things have changed, but the concept's still basically the same. The less you are protected, uh, protecting yourself and the less vigilant you are, the more likely you are going to be susceptible to an attack. What is a plausible worst case scenario for uh, you know what could happen if the government of Ontario was hacked, do you think? Uh, I'll bring up an interesting uh, anecdote, uh, an interesting story. When I was the director of IT at the Ontario PC party, I had a staff of about seven or eight people, including a senior developer. And uh, at the time, John Tory, who was the leader of the party, was running in a by-election in Halliburton, Cork Lakes, Brock. And we had uh, built a party, rebuilt the new party website. And at that same time, uh, the Liberal candidate had launched their website. This is back in 2008, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I said to my team, okay, well, the Liberal candidates put up their website, go and take a look at what they've done, see what we can do and how we can do it better. Now, generally speaking, that's the only task that somebody who wants to build a better website should be doing is looking at what the, what's already out there and figuring out how to improve on it. This developer, in fact, went to the Liberal Party website to see what the technology was and realized that the Ontario Liberals had actually what they did was they allowed any kind of error message that was generated 
through the website to actually appear on the screen, which is you know, bad practice. It's not the way you actually build a website. The person browsing it, if they get an error, shouldn't see the technical details of what that error is on the screen. But it allowed the developer to be able to then go into a Chrome web browser and type in in the address bar a series of commands that could manipulate the data on the Ontario Liberal Party website. Oh, yeah. And when he, <laughs> yeah. Now, when he told me about this, I, I have to be honest. My first reaction was to laugh because I thought, well, this is interesting. The governing party, and this was uh, uh, Dalton McGinty was premier at the time, governing party has the resources, the financial resources to be able to, to track this stuff and to prevent this stuff from happening. But it really doesn't matter whether you've got all the money in the world or not. If you haven't built something properly, you run the risk of this. I told the, the developer not to touch it anymore. My responsibility now was to go to, the, to my counterpart at the Ontario Liberal Party to explain the situation. By that night, that developer went home and thought it was funny that he was able to, to manipulate the content on the on the Ontario Liberal Party website and went a step further by deleting all of the content on the Ontario Liberal Party website. And the next day, Andy Pringle, who was the chief of staff to the to the leader, to John Tory, stormed into my office, rhyming off computer names. And that's when I realized this is a problem. Uh, the way the provincial government handled that situation wouldn't be very different from the way it would handle it today by, first of all, they were alerted of a problem, of a, of a potential issue. Um, and in fact, the uh, caucus and the party, the Liberal Party, were both made aware of what was going on. They received help from caucus to be able to shut this down, stop it from, from happening, turning off the error messages that were producing this problem in the first place. Uh, and uh, the employee, uh, incidentally, he was on his way up to Halliburton to campaign for the leader, uh, had to call him back. He I had to terminate him uh, and uh, he faced uh, criminal charges in the end, which I think were settled out of court. Hmm. Now, that hap that's easy when you know who the bad actor is. Right. And you can prevent things from happening when you don't know who the bad actor is. You're now left to your own defenses. And that really comes down to, do you have backups in place? Do you have a policy and procedure for disaster recovery and business resumption? Uh, those are two very important pieces of any IT infrastructure to make sure that if something bad happens, you can immediately spin up working again. Because if there is something bad that happens, you're not guaranteed necessarily to be right back up and working right away while your IT department fixes the problem. The feds are a little different. And I think, you know, a lot of people might have lost confidence with the feds, especially when we talk about technology, the Phoenix payroll system, for example, being a, a massive blunder. You can only go with so far as what your capabilities within your team are. But the province, I think, is fairly well handled, uh, fairly well equipped, rather, to handle any kind of nefarious actor or, or any kind of attack. Donald, that's some great background and some helpful advice as well for the people listening to this podcast. So we thank you for coming on the On Poly podcast today. That's Donald Blair, Director of Information Technology for Vitimus, which, having taken a little high school Latin, I know means we conquered. And that's what you want to do with those cyber criminals out there. So thanks a lot, Donald. Thanks so much, Steve and John. I appreciate it. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. Remember to listen to the very end to find out what embarrassing comments JMMRI made before we actually started recording this podcast. They didn't tell me the mic was hot. What? <laughs> yeah, we've seen a few politicians get caught with a hot mic lately. We thought in the interest of equal time, 
Matthew O'Mara, our producer, is going to do it to us. So we'll see what he's got up his Did you sleeve. See the, the Chris Christie one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was yep. a good one. Yep. Uh, you can follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here's one from listener Ashley Challoner. This may be the best one ever. Ashley Challoner, who asks, do you think the United Federation of Planets has their own equivalent of the notwithstanding clause? This has got your name written all over it. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I, well, we know they have the prime directive. Yes. Which is not exactly the notwithstanding clause, but it's nerdy enough that it might just work on these circumstances. Well, and, and they, they violate the prime directive so regularly that, I mean, isn't James T. Kirk just a, a walking notwithstanding clause? <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, notwithstanding the prime directive, I'm doing whatever the hell I want. Absolutely. There, there you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that question. Uh, this week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Christine Gardner and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.